You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. On today's episode of The Zeitgeist, uh, we are talking to someone who may be well-known to many of our uh, listeners. Uh, that is Martin Riechenhagen. He is the chairman of the Board of Trustees of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies. He is also a well-known uh, executive, having been the CEO of AGCO, uh, the uh, agricultural equipment manufacturer based in Atlanta, Georgia, for many years. Um, and he's also an author. And uh, his latest book is published in German and uh, has been doing uh, quite well. And so I thought uh, we would take this opportunity to talk a little bit with Martin uh, about his book and about his experiences and about the importance of the German-American relationship. So, um, uh, so Martin, uh, very glad to have you with us today. Uh, welcome. Thank you very much for the invitation. And, how, and so the book is doing pretty well uh, from what I understand. Yeah, I was surprised. So it comes in this week on the famous Spiegel bestseller list, uh, rank 24, I heard. Oh, well, that's uh, that's terrific. Uh, the book was released uh, April 8th, um, and it's published by Edel. Um, so uh, it's available in German. So our, our German-speaking listeners uh, out there, um, you can you can find a copy wherever you get uh, get your books. Um, uh, Martin, I wanted to start off, uh, you know, you, you tell the story um, in, in this book, which is titled uh, Der America Flüsterer, uh, The America Whisperer, uh, the story of your origins in Cologne and how that uh, brought you uh, to uh, your role as, a, as an executive, as a, a fixture on the German-American um, uh, circuit. And um, there are a couple of things that stand out to me, just sort of personal qualities, but I'd be interested if you if you would agree. Uh, one thing that stands out is um, sort of curiosity. You know, you had a sentence uh, where you talked about uh, that it had always been your dream to, to get out of Cologne and into the world. Um, so this curiosity seems to be a, a recurring theme throughout the book. Uh, and also maybe a little bit of restlessness. You changed jobs um, fairly frequently. And, and, you know, when you started off as a teacher, uh, you, you note at one point that once you could see the entire arc of your career as a teacher laid out before you, very predictable, um, that that was the thing you had never wanted. Um, so do I have that right? Curiosity and restlessness? Well, partially. So, um, because I, I grew up in a kind of unique uh, neighborhood, one could almost call it a ghetto. So I'm born in Cologne in 52 and Cologne was completely destroyed uh, in World War II by American, mainly American uh, uh, Air Force. And so it was flat, no buildings, nothing anymore. And the, um, the mayor of Cologne, Adenauer, who, fought, who later became the chancellor of Germany, uh, decided to do some construction work for people who needed homes. And so my parents lost everything and my, my grandparents as well. And so with uh, the help of uh, veterans who were all badly uh, injured during the war, they basically did build uh, townhouses in a kind of 
area between an interstate um, and a, a railroad. And uh, so in order to buy, to be allowed to buy a house there, you had to be, a, first of all, Catholic. And then you had to have uh, plenty of children. And so uh, therefore, this was a kind of special neighborhood where, let's say, uh, it was safe. And, and when you, you, uh, we liked it as kids, but when you, when you then grow up later on, uh, you really want to see something else. You want to see the world. And therefore, I fully agree. Yes, I wanted to, to, uh, to travel around and, and, and see the world. Uh, I was never really restless because um, I, uh, my, my, my idea was always to, to finish things uh, to the, uh, and to finish it through to the end. So I, I, um, what, whatever I started, I also uh, finished and I finished it well. And when you said I moved a lot, so that means I worked for, I do believe three, four companies. So in our world, in today's world, that's really not a lot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I worked as the chairman and CEO for Echo uh, for almost 17 years, which is uh, by far more than average. Yeah. Um, and so in your role as CEO of, of Agco, which... You know, I think for people, for for the average consumer, um, they might not uh, be so familiar with Agco because you're produce, producing agricultural equipment uh, under various brand names. Um, so farmers will know uh, Agco, um, but somebody who uh, who isn't in the agricultural business might not. But it is uh, a Fortune 400 company, if I uh, have that right. Fortune uh, 300. 300. And so. Uh, I think people know some of the brands. I think a lot of people know Massey Ferguson. Mm -hmm. And of course, in Germany, people know Fendt. So it's a, uh, yeah, when I joined the company, uh, they, they, we had 26 brands. And when I left, we were down to three. So, but it's a multi-brand company. You're right. And and so, you know, one of the things that uh, struck me in, in reading the book is, you know, having experiences at the top of the American business world, um, but also uh, in, in German industry um, uh, with, with major German companies, you experience the ways that, um, you know, people form judgments. Um, I don't want to call them stereotypes, but people have certain preconceptions, Americans about Germans. Germans about Americans, um, and those can sometimes get in the way of of understanding um, and of cooperation. So, uh, how have you, uh, you know, perceived those um, prejudices, if you want to call them that? And how have you tried to uh, to get beyond them, to uh, uh, to deconstruct them, to uh, uh, to to make make things work? Well, uh, one general preconception about Germans is they are great engineers, they're precise, they're always on time, and uh, great technicians. And so there's some truth in it. So German engineers played a very important role in the development of our range of products, but it came also with a downside, uh, because uh, jokingly, I always said German engineers know best what customers need. And so that was funny to see a Fendt fail when they wanted to uh, go to, uh, to the US because 
row crop farming is a way of farming where you basically adjust the width of your wheels uh, by the crop you are planting. And so the German engineers came to the US and wanted to explain the American farmers that this is all wrong and how they should do it because their product didn't allow those adjustments. So this was a typical um, weakness of the organization and also those German, the Germans who want to be right and are proud to be right all the time, they are not very good listeners. So we had to, um, uh, to change that. On the other hand, um, Americans, um, they have a, they're great people in marketing and, 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 and public relation and so on. Uh, but also here, they talk a lot, but they don't listen very well. So we had a common theme already, which uh, helped basically uh, to get the teams and the people closer together. I think it's very important in any relationship, whether it's business or whether it's our foundation, that we, uh, we talk to each other and that we, more, more importantly, that we listen to each other. Mm-hmm. Well, and that, that brings me, you, you quote... Um... Um, Heiner Geisler, a uh, longtime CDU uh, political leader, uh, with the phrase, um, emotions uh, become facts. Um, and uh, I wonder, do you see that as a danger to the broader German-American relationship uh, these days, that, it, uh, that emotional ra- feel- feelings um, become insurmountable? It is. When uh, during the last administration, uh, a lot of people in Germany started to dislike America just because of the president. And so this emotional approach turned into facts by companies uh, considering not to invest as much in the United States anymore, or even simple tourists not wanting to come to America anymore. So I have friends who basically said, oh, we don't come to visit this year uh, as long as you have this kind of a president. So that means uh, this happens, but this happens uh, also in the other direction. So that means um, we have to, the question is, what can you do? And I think as soon as you uh, explain uh, why this is an emotion and why this is not a fact, I think that already helps. Mm -hmm. But in our world, in politics, but also in the media, emotions sometimes play a much bigger role than they should. Yeah. Well, and, uh, you know, I find, um, you know, this has something to do, I think, with the different sizes and the different roles of the country. But Americans, uh, you know, persistently have a favorable impression of Germany and of Germans, um, uh, even when Germans think uh, think the opposite. And you, if you look at opinion, you know, public opinion, um, even when the political relationship has been kind of difficult, uh, especially over the last few years, Americans have always generally said, "Yeah, you know, we get along well with Germany, and we like Germans." So, you know, in some ways, that emotion is an asset. Because on the in the in the United States, it's a positive feeling um, that doesn't seem to fluctuate too much. I think Americans are wonderful people uh, be, just because of this. So they, in general, have a much more positive way of life and way of thinking, and they don't 
think about what's all going into the wrong direction, what's, what's, what's bad. They think about, well, what can be done and what can be achieved. And so when you talk to, I met, I was traveling quite a bit during my active career. And so I met a lot of people uh, in the US, but also in Europe. And so the classical, typical American uh, you meet might not be an expert in European culture, geography, or history. So you meet somebody, typically an older couple, and they explain you how much they loved Vienna, Germany, or Munich, Switzerland, and things like that. So they didn't get the geography completely right, but uh, they were only positive about everything. And so for many Americans, Germany, even if they have never been there, is this kind of uh, Bavarian Oktoberfest uh, wonderland. Uh, and, and, and so uh, now, on the other hand, Germans, when you were in, in, the, in the days before, the, the, uh, before Corona, when you basically were in New York during Christmas time, uh, Fifth Avenue was packed by German tourists who came to New York shopping. Mm -hmm. And the Germans have a certain tendency, one, to know everything, even without knowing a lot. So that means we have Germans who, who go to New York and Miami and think they know the United States, which is, of course, wrong. But on the other hand, they're always comparing. So when you listen, when you walk Fifth Avenue and listen to those tourists, all the time they were talking about, oh, in Munich or in Düsseldorf or in Cologne, this and that is much better and less expensive and, and whatsoever. And sometimes I did get a little excited and said, well, actually, why don't you go home <laughs> in German? And then they were scared. And then I used it to explain them a little bit more about America. What I like is we live in Atlanta, Georgia, and we are here for good because um, the the lifestyle is by far more, uh, more positive. Living is more easy here. People are friendly. So you come into a, uh, into a supermarket in the, in, in, at any time of the day and you're greeted and people talk to you and they call you baby or things like that. Uh, how are you doing? What a great day. So this kind of uh, uh, good mood is the opposite from what uh, you normally face in, in Germany. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, you talked about a, the, the American characteristic uh, of if you see a problem, um, then you try to fix it. And, uh, you know, perhaps that's a characteristic that, you know, as, as a naturalized American, you have also uh, adopted uh, because the, you know, one of the uh, situations you describe in the book that struck me uh, has to do with institutions, not necessarily governmental institutions, but kind of cultural and social institutions. You talk about the, um, uh, the things that uh, you and some of your uh, business uh, colleagues in Atlanta did um, to keep alive the, the Goethe um, presence um, and uh, also the German-American Cultural Foundation. So, uh, you know, what role do you see these kinds of non-governmental institutions playing? Um, of course, you're now leading one at AICGS, so uh, clearly it's important. Well, one, I'm leading the best one. <laughs> um, because we also have the best uh, president you could think of. Uh, oh, and then second, what I like in America is uh, uh, the idea 
of learning by doing, uh, fixing things. And then also we have a culture, uh, we allow mistakes to be made as long as we learn from the mistakes and don't repeat the same mistakes 20 times in, in a row. So um, talking about these uh, institutions, um, what I learned is that people who come from a German-American background uh, were in a position to use their American uh, attitude or the, the American culture to fix a typical German problem. So the Germans decided to discontinue Goethe Institute in Atlanta. And the reason was that they wanted to reduce costs and they wanted to do more in Africa. And uh, this was just at the beginning of the Trump era. And I think that was completely wrong. I had the, the chance to talk to uh, Steinmeier, who at that time was uh, Secretary of Foreign Affairs and uh, paid a visit uh, to Atlanta. And so, and he explained it. And, and so the, the German bureaucracy can be very top heavy. And so therefore there was no chance to change that decision once it had been taken. Mm -hmm. And so then the German-Americans decided that we would fund uh, the Goethe Institute uh, here in Atlanta. And now comes a typical German uh, thing. Uh, Goethe Institute and the, uh, the, the ministry did not allow us to continue to use the name, uh, <laughs> which is, of course, one of the assets. So when you have a good brand, Uh, it does. It does hurt when you when you don't have funds anymore. On top of that, you lose your brand. So we decided to call it Goethe School, and that worked very well because the main purpose of Goethe uh, is good language uh, uh, lessons for for affordable language uh, training. And so the other thing um, uh, was the. Um, Oh, the German-American the, the, the cultural foundation. foundation. So that means um, all companies here in the area who had business, who were either German or had business in Germany, were always asked from the same people uh, for money. Goethe choir, Goethe, uh, German school, German choir, German church, German college, and so on. And so uh, that at that time, the... Uh, the, the head of Porsche of America, a guy called Peter Schwartz, came to see me in my office. I was just here for a few weeks. And he said, well, actually, you, I just want to warn you, a lot of people will come and talk to you because now you run an American company, but you are German and they are desperate uh, For, they want you to, to help them with money. And he developed, uh, he explained the idea that we should find out what the total amount of money uh, they needed per year. And then the idea was that we uh, raise the money and then distribute it uh, to them. And then we would only have to talk uh, uh, to, to them by occasion. And, and, and so uh, we did that. We created that German-American Cultural Foundation here in Atlanta. Uh, we needed, they basically raised about $80,000 per year. We rounded it up and we said, well, actually, we need $100,000 a year. And we also said we want to increase the funding every year by 10%. And so uh, we were able to raise that money quickly through memberships. 
and it's still uh, a very, very important uh, institution here to basically support the German-American uh, matter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A startup, if yes. you could, you could <laughs> say so. A nonprofit startup. Um, and innovation is important. I think another thing that struck me um, is that you reflect a lot in this book on the, uh, not just on the German-American economic relationship, but also on the on corporate responsibility, um, not just in the location where you might be headquartered, um, but also in a corporation's international presence. Um, what you know? How does that connect, in your view, with the with the role of governments? You know, should they should governments and industry be working hand in hand, or should they be sort of kept separate enough that they are you know, doing things that are complementary, perhaps, but um, but independent, really? Well, you know that I um, um, started my academic career life, so to say, and studied Roman matters, which was French and Italian and so on, language, history, literature, uh, 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 Catholic theology and philosophy, and then became a, a high school teacher. And so uh, I did do my thesis in theology uh, uh, on the, um, I don't know whether that's a American word, Christology, uh, of yeah. a yeah. very well-known uh, professor of theology called Hans Küng. Uh, he just yes. died a few weeks ago. He was very, very famous also because 40 years ago the Pope uh, didn't want him to teach in behalf of the church anymore. And so this guy then basically focused a lot on the question of moral and ethics. And he was uh, developing the idea of what he called Weltethos, the world ethics. And so what he did, basically, he was looking into the commonality between all religions and all philosophy uh, and philosophical schools and basically boiled it down to maybe the five to ten most important uh, things they had in common. And so my idea was now that this is what we need in the future because the influence of churches is going down. Uh, capitalism is very successful, but uh, doesn't help us here so much. And so my idea was that the media, politics, business, and religions should basically join forces in order to help to make our world better in the future. And uh, I think this is a development which is getting more and more traction. You can see that in companies, for example, it's today, it's very important that, you, that not only your numbers uh, are right, but also you, you are doing your business in a very sustainable manner. That's why you have sustainability reports, which can become as important as your annual report. And so you can see that 
investors and shareholders also uh, come in with certain ethical standards. So nobody wants to invest in a company anymore uh, that is making money by polluting the world or doing stupid things. Mm -hmm. And that started with uh, institutional investors like the uh, the nuns of San Francisco or the teachers of uh, Pittsburgh. And now it's getting, this is a trend now. And so I think uh, business is already heading into that direction. Politics, uh, depending on the, on the country, the same. So we are used uh, to certain ideas like that in the Western world. But of course, there's a lot of... Uh, work to be done in uh, those countries which basically uh, uh, don't do this right now, like China, Russia, and so on. Mm -hmm. so, so what does that shared responsibility mean when you think about the transatlantic agenda, which of course is something that we're working on all, every day um, at AICGS? How do, how do those pieces fit together in your view? On the one hand, you've got um, you know, the responsibility of the business community. Um, but that's incomplete if you don't have, if it's not uh, somehow covered, flanked, uh, supported um, by political engagement. How do those things have to come together? I think, first of all, people have to understand the differences uh, in the two societies. Uh, so you could say Germany is a, a quite a modern uh, uh, country which uh, basically went through what in philosophy is called Aufklärung. So uh, people believe in facts and not so much in, in, in emotions. Yeah, we talk about emotions again. And what people wouldn't believe and very often don't know is that a relevant uh, number of people in the US still live in a different world. So we have plenty of people who, who are against abortion, but for death penalty. They are against uh, gay uh, and lesbian people. Uh, they, are, they might be racist. Uh, uh, they, they really, um, some really, we, we, we call them evangelists. So they basically... Uh, take the Bible word by word and think that everything has happened as written. And so this is something which basically doesn't exist in Germany for, I would guess, more than 50 years, in some cases more than 100 years. So, and we need to explain the differences. Uh, we need to make sure that people are tolerant because on both sides, you have people who strongly believe in, in their thoughts and they're very, very intolerant towards other ideas. So, and that's uh, for as much for the more modern uh, um, society, how I see Germany as for the more conservative or uh, 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 in uh, society in certain parts of America. Inside America, we have the same conflict between people in the big cities or on the West Coast and people uh, in the Corn Belt and so on. So that is the first very important part that we 
that we understand, that we come in with tolerance and that we start to talk to each other and that we identify the, the common shared values, which I think we have a lot of. And uh, I think uh, Germany and America or Europe and America uh, are a much more needed important factor when it comes to the development of our societies in the future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we're in uh, the, the middle of a German uh, election cycle um, as well. Um, there have been a few state elections already this year. We've got another one coming up uh, in June. And of course, a Bundestag election um, in September. If you look at the polls, at least as of right now, they show uh, a pretty strong performance by the Green Party. Um, they also uh, show the, the Christian Democrats uh, and the Christian Social Union um, even, maybe a little behind, maybe a little ahead. But um, what it looks like is that there will be a new government in Germany after this election. It'll be different uh, from the coalition that uh, is in power now. Um, and so when I come back to the, the theme that you mentioned of sustainability, which is important for the business world um, and uh, you know, climate protection and fighting climate change, another top priority in the United States and in Germany. Um, and the fact that the Green Party has, uh, is in sync in some way with, uh, with public sentiment on, on these issues. You know, how do you see that? Um, uh, do you see that as a, as a significant change on the horizon in, uh, in German politics and that might have an effect on the transatlantic relationship? How do, you, how do you fit those pieces together? You've just spent uh, several weeks in Germany promoting your book, so you've had some uh, uh, you know, direct experiences as well. Yeah, and I, uh, I know all the candidates, including uh, the Green candidate uh, personally. Uh, so uh, you, you are completely right. So there will be a new government for sure. And there will be German uh, governments. Um, so for many years already, no party had enough votes. Uh, so which would mean 51% in order to... Uh, to, to run the country without a uh, coalition. So Germany is used to, uh, to have coalitions, a very uh, long period uh, at the beginning of Germany was the coalition between the uh, Christian Democrats and the FDP. So what they call liberal, it's not liberal here in the American uh, uh, Terms, so they were more a pro-business uh, uh, party. And uh, so what we saw is under Merkel, Merkel was moving the, her party more into the middle. Uh, so what had been a rather very conservative party now became a, I would call it still conservative, but more modern uh, uh, party. And that basically created uh, two issues. One, the SPD was losing support because out of a sudden the CDU was basically into their, uh, uh, their uh, field, so to say. And then 
On the other hand, it created space at the right uh, uh, side of the spectrum, which basically then um, generated, so to say, or caused, I think, the AFD to have a chance. Mm -hmm. So now for the upcoming uh, election, I do not believe that any of the smaller or mid-sized parties have any chance to form a coalition. People talk about the left and the SPD together with the Green, but they wouldn't have enough votes. Uh, nobody wants to work with the AFD, which are the right-wing guys, right. So, which basically uh, makes... I think uh, which uh, which opens the uh, the which which basically we will have most probably only one solution which is green and black so green and the CDU with or without the FDP depending on how many votes they will get in total um, and so I think uh, this is also what uh, the majority of the Germans might uh, accept. Um, so uh, Germany is a country, uh, it's an overcrowded country, so it's a small country with a lot of people and they, have, they certainly have a lot of environmental issues because they're so industrialized and so on. So, and therefore I, I could see a black-green uh, coalition uh, um, easily, whether then the chancellor uh, is coming from the one or the other uh, Party depends basically only on who gets the the most votes, and right now it looks close. But I think at the end the black will have more votes than the green, because the the, the program of the green party uh, strongly asked for more influence of the state. It's something we see here in the U.S. right now as well, and that is not what people like. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.